I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Carl. I'm from South Wales. And you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, is a weather spoons an appropriate place for a date or more specifically, a first date? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka Dehiza. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from. We are talking everything from Callum from South Wales's question. Is a Weatherspoons an appropriate place for a date or a first date? Dane, have you ever taken a date to a Weatherspoons? Uh, I think I have actually. Or well, I've met, yeah. I've met somebody at Weatherspoons. You know, yeah. I, I, it's not, it's not selling the romance, is it? Really, if we're honest. But it's not the worst place you could take someone. Well, I just think with any kind of date, it's not the where, it's the with. Because you know, you can take someone to an upscale restaurant or something like that. If you, they're not good for conversation or they eat loudly, then you're still going to have a bad time. Whereas. You know, I definitely believe if you are with the right person or someone that you genuinely enjoy their company, then you can do that in like a park, a picnic or a bench. Like, you know, crackheads, I see them drinking like white lightning together in parks and they seem happy. I mean, fair, 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 fair. I know a large part of their happiness is largely focused on substance abuse as opposed to finding a significant other. But, you know, if you can, it's about finding common ground with somebody. I, I just, is, it's all subjective is what I'm trying to take. say but I think I think yeah. for me Weatherspoons is fine I mean it's all about the the. I think it's the um, the who rather than the where so I think it can be appropriate well we will uh, have to wait and see what our guest uh, thinks of this but um, suffice to say on this podcast we ask and answer all the questions don't we Dane absolutely and if you do like the show please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode or subscribe to us on Acast the world's biggest podcast network where you can hear all of our questions being answered by all of our very special guests with that being said on today's show our guest is a London born journalist and broadcaster he has written for the BBC The Guardian Vice NME GQ and BuzzFeed and specialises in writing about pop culture video games films and football he's currently a reporter for the sports media group The Athletic and he also wrote the book, You Are a Champion, with the very special Marcus Rashford, humanitarian and philanthropist. It's none other than Carl Ankar. Ahoy, hoy. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. So, Ankar uh, obviously sounds like Anchor when it sounds that phonetically. Is that why you say ahoy, hoy? Is it kind of like a sailor thing that you've had to kind of adjust to? That's not a question, by the way. I'm just more of an intro thing. Yeah, it's that, and it's uh, how uh, Mr. Burns picks up the phone in The Simpsons. And also, Ahoy Hoy was one of the first um, prototype greetings on the phone. So when the telephone was invented, ah. they said, should we say hello? Should we say this? Should we say this? And one of the sayings that was mooted was to say, Ahoy Hoy. So uh, that you had me on, you had me on Mr. Burns. You had me on Mr. Burns, Carl. You've passed the test, and you've actually exceeded the test. It wasn't, you know, you've made a you made a Simpsons reference as well as a bit of trivia. So you're already good with us, Carl. Got to ask the question: Do you take dates to Weatherspoons? No, I don't think I would. No disrespect to Weatherspoons. Um, I just would, if I'm on the first date, I'd like to take him somewhere where I can have a conversation properly, and Weatherspoons can be kind of loud. So not for me. Great answer. Really solid answer. Yeah, yeah. Also, their also employment um, policies aren't particularly nice at Weatherspoon, so I wouldn't like to be appearing to kind of be in line with that whole thing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Well. Sort of, I've, I've got, you know, I went to university, I worked in a bar. I had friends that worked in other bars, including Weatherspoons. That's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But uh, the person in charge of the Weatherspoons, Mr. Tim Martin, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm pulling the face. If you ask me what I think of him, uh, you know, I, I, I could at best 
stretch to a polite nod and uh, as I continue walking, and that's how I feel about that gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of got like a, a Mr. Burns Weatherspoons. If Mr. Burns owned the Weatherspoons, that, that's exactly how I imagined the owner of Weatherspoons to be like. It's like, oh, ahoy, with, Peter String, with Peter Stringfellow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They've got that kind of thing as well where he's kind of like, oh, hi, hi. That's right. Bring them in at nighttime and they can start working on the pumps for Monday morning. Ahoy. I used to work with a journalist who uh, did, did a challenge where he ate three meals of Weatherspoons every day for a week. It was a real sort of. He, his salt intake went through the roof. Uh, one big thing that gentleman noticed was Weatherspoons are secretly custodians or protectors of some really good architecture in London. There are some fantastic mm. old converted Art Deco cinemas, some uh, converted churches. There are some really impressive Weatherspoons buildings. And the building work that goes into that, you know, has now been rebranded as Weatherspoons is quite interesting. Uh, there are some very, very good <laughs> Weatherspoons on the coast. Hang on. Uh, my friend once said, uh, my friend Caroline is a cyclist and as part of a cycling group, she met someone who did like a cycling tour of the United Kingdom going from Weatherspoons to Weatherspoons. And then, you know, my friend Caroline goes, what's the best Weatherspoons in the country? And this gentleman said, without hesitation, Ramsgate, uh, which I mean... It looks bloody amazing. So yeah, if if you are going to go on a date to Weatherspoons, Ramsgate Weatherspoons is probably the best one to do it. Hmm. It's interesting. It's very interesting because well, it's interesting because um, you know the uh, owner of Weatherspoons himself voted for Brexit. So it's kind of ironic that the port by which we arrived to France and the European yeah. Union is the place where the best Weatherspoons is, and maybe that's what influenced his decision. He's like, how come all my customers keep leaving me in the middle of the day? It's like because they've gone to work, bro. That's why. And now he's finally realised because he's now been quoted in the papers as saying he needs more immigrant staff to cover the shifts of uh, Weatherspoons employees. It's like, but you wanted to halt that immigration through voting for Brexit, surely. Um, mm. I'll tell you what's also ironic as well is that like, I, am, I appreciate that Weatherspoons probably does have some very good architecture. But ironically, that's probably the last place you should bring it up. Like if you're in the, <laughs> if you're in the Weatherspoons, you're like, my, there's some good architecture on mm. there. So I'm like, what, you shut Oxbridge? Let's get a fucking pint in or saying. Oh, no, I think I think there's many a Weatherspoons customer that will appreciate a good bit of building work. You know, the well, I'm going to pitch a new show where Dane Baptiste and Carl Anker go to Weatherspoons to see if the customers want to discuss the architecture of the pubs. Uh, one off for for Channel Four. <laughs> uh, yeah. Weatherspoons up and down the country. There, there was that very good website that just uh, took photographs of all the carpets in different Weatherspoons, and you just looked at the carpet patterns. Right. Weatherspoons are in- interesting, right? Any big chain thing in the United Kingdom is interesting from like a building standpoint and a yeah. customer standpoint. If you want to know what the people yeah. of a certain area think, hang around the Weatherspoons a little bit. There you are. That's me. Journalist. Well, I think Callum, uh, our, who asked that question, has got more than he bargained for <laughs> uh, and also some amazing advice. So um, it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane, as the uh, format of this show dictates? Absolutely. Carl's our very esteemed guest and uh, obviously we're we're read and learned guests. We invite you to ask the first question, which can be any question you would like, which we like to discuss for about 50 minutes or some change. Then Howard will do the same and we'll continue that discussion. Then lather, it's repeat. I'd like to ask you the final question. Uh, which we discuss for the same amount of time around. And uh, then we can uh, please let our listeners know where they can find out more about your good works and uh, what your keen eye for journalism has observed moving forward. Uh, how does that sound? Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Cuckoo. Well, the floor is yours to ask the first question. Uh, this question is from one of my best friends, Kevin Byrne, and it's his one, one of his go-to icebreakers. <laughs> Name a one-hit wonder. If you could have written and performed, <laughs> if you if you could be responsible for any one-hit wonder in the world, what one-hit wonder do you wish you could have created? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask for a little bit more information on this question. I'm sure Dane's gonna. Dane's gonna are we are we including people who had one hit wonder, but then also kind of maybe had another hit? So no, like, no, we're talking, you know, we're talking, the, no, no. The, we're talking. One hit one. Because somewhere like because two unlimited had more than one hit, didn't they? Yes, they, they had. had no limit and the Twilight Zone, if I remember correctly, uh, and also a song called "Get Ready," I think. Yes, uh, and they also did that. Did, 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 they did. They did a remix of one of their songs for the Teenage Turtles soundtrack as well. So, 
So I would say it's quite tough to, to include two unlimited. Would you agree with that, Carl? I would. I would. I, you have, we're talking one hit wonder. When we play this game, we tend to get up the Wikipedia for one hit wonders. We tend to look up the Rolling Stone list for the best one hit wonders. And then we go in massive arguments as to whether or not certain bands were indeed one hit wonders. So. I know what mine is because I actually like the song. Um, okay, and, and, and I think that's one. And that's one of the interesting things about One Hit Wonders is that the songs are often novelty songs, like Mister um, um, Wazo. Is, is the do you remember the the flat mm-hmm. beat one? Flat mm-hmm. flat Eric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that was like a, that was like a, that was like a very much a. Levi's entire campaign. Levi's had an entire campaign when they did One Hit Wonders because also Babylon Zoo did the song Spaceman. And then in the advert, it was like, it was like this song is amazing. And then they did the other song, and I was like, nah. So that, that song I was not allowed to listen to because uh, Babylon Zoo, <laughs> basically during the early 90s, Babylon Zoo were, were quite, uh, let's call them esoteric in their performances on Top of the mm. Pops. And my very yeah. uh, Christian Catholic family thought, <laughs> yeah, hmm. of course they did. Shouldn't yeah, yeah. Be, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be engaging with that music, so I wasn't allowed to listen to that song. There was so the interesting thing about that was the Levi advert. The Levi advert was a remix of the Spaceman. Yes, it was. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. a remix and a cut bit right from the start. It's like so an abridged version. It's basically yeah. it was like the opening of the song and then the closed song at the end, the coda for the song at the end. Yeah, so no verses, mm-hmm. no bridge, um, which I yeah. enjoyed. And then when I heard the whole song, I was like, but then I find the song it was quite funny because they um, the song's quite upbeat in the advert. But the actual song by Babylon Zoo is actually kind of bleak. Yeah, so. yeah. The lead singer from Babylon Zoo, very interesting interview, and that's yeah, yeah gave some very, very uh, eyebrow raising. Mm. Huh. Well, you've said that interviews in uh, during his time. <laughs> uh, I, I like just like it's one of those interview, you know one of those people were like going back and reading those interviews. Going, huh, that's mildly entertaining. <laughs> the thing about a one hit wonder from my perspective uh, uh, when you look at the history of one hit wonders a lot of the time i don't like the songs but the novelty of them is kind of entertaining so you know there's there's obviously a million different examples it's like i'll give you a different example Scatman john right we all <laughs> do we all remember Scatman john carl, carl do you remember Scatman john you're not pulling faces making noises carl because, what's because going you on remember him or you don't and you, and you, <laughs> that, that sounds like not only do you remember him but you're oppressing carl it's it's john yes it is yes it is well there we go, go. But I wouldn't let's say I love that song. I don't love that song, but the novelty but of the scenario is entertaining. Didn't he have two songs as well, though? Because he had um, that song, Scatman, and then um, Scatman's World. Yeah, I wouldn't say Scatman's World quite as big a hit, but, you know. Tricky sequel. Tricky, tricky sequel. So this is it. Would you, so you, <laughs> if, you like, if you like Scatman John, do you wish you could remove Scatman John's place from the musical canon and that was you instead? No, that would be mental. So then, that would be that so would then, be, yeah. So, so that's not that's not your choice. What is your choice then? So, so my choice. I'm going to tell you my choice right now. It is the uh, the ninety three, ninety four, something like that. Um, hit by a, a band called the Crash Test Dummies. Ooh, uh, the, the, song. the song. The song was just mm, 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 yes. If nobody's yeah, ever heard it, I know it and very it, well. And it and it's and it's such a peculiar track because it, it it's it's very um, a lot of one hit wonders are very classic pop songs, right? They're not like um, they're up upbeat and they get people involved. They're quite fun. This is a very melancholy song about uh, each verse is about a different child with a different problem. And then it kind of gets through this child's problem. And then it just, the chorus is just them going, mm, 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 but obviously in a far more melodic way than I've just done. So, um, and I think it's genuinely a really interesting piece of music. I, I couldn't compare many one hit wonders to that. Uh, maybe, maybe you agree, Carl. I don't know. I, I, I get you in, in that sort of, it's a song that breaks traditional convention of pop writing songs. Uh, I can see the appeal as to why you'd want to be responsible for that. Yeah, yeah. I and when I go vision. to weddings, when I go to weddings and they say, oh, what do you do? And I was like, well, I've done a few things in my life. I remember that song, mm, 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 I, I wrote that. That's, I'm down for that. That's okay, all right. yeah. okay. All right, all right. <laughs> do you, you already have a stock answer for this, Carl, by the way? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the Dane, first. Over to you. <laughs> okay, mine's is I, I'm keeping it pretty co- boring and corporate, and it would just be uh, "Happy Birthday," writ- written by oh. Pat, <laughs> Patty and Mildred J Hill. 
That guy. Why are you guys rolling your eyes, cuz? I got this. Sometimes you have to plant, plant the seeds for the trees that you won't, in, you know, you won't enjoy their shade. Okay. That, that man was flicking that money at the uh, flicking that money at the microphone. He's sending his kids to college with that. <laughs> I'm gonna found my own country with that, and I would be really stringent on all of the licensing and stuff as well. If it's used for any commercial use, TGI Fridays, I'd just be like that. Ching 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 ching. <laughs> Anything like if it's normal people singing it to their friends and family and loved ones, fine. Any commercial use, if TJ sing it to you, I want some of that bread. If you go on holiday to Mykonos to an all inclusive with the wristbands and they come out and they start, I'm coming to Thomas Cook and I'm shaving some of that money. So that'll be my one hit wonder. So, so you're That's a great one. So you get all your peas, you're living in your mansion, you got your complex. What happens when you hear you overhear your next door neighbor sing happy birthday? What are you doing then? I'll let it slide. And then I'll go, when they're like, my kids are having a barbecue, come over. I'll be like, I'd love to. And then I'd knock the door and I'd be like, they'd be like, Dane, you didn't bring your partner. No, I bought my lawyer with an injunction. (laughs) You better learn Stevie Wonder's version. (laughs) Dane, you have in some ways won this competition because it's a very, very good choice for the financial recompense. Yeah, the, uh, mu- the sure. music industry is just, it's just cutthroat. It's, you know, we all know it's 90% business, 10% <laughs> show. And I'd love to have been an artist who have continued to enrich people's lives with other uplifting songs to celebrate different junctions of their life. But this is the one that brought the money in. <laughs> Damn. You know? And the only people yeah. that tend to oppose me are, what it means is that basically the only people I can be around is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So great, yeah, great, great. It, that, that works out a treat. It never, never comes up at their parties. <laughs> Do they have many pies? I mean, I they're more gatherings, and uh, mm. by gathering, I mean Bible study meetings. And by Bible study meetings, I mean it's, it's been really hard since I made all this money. I'm actually very lonely. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe, Carl, maybe, what's... maybe I should have written all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, what's your answer? If you've got this up your sleeve, I'd say there was, there was a short list. Like you know, honorable mention also goes to uh, Mambo Number no. Five by Louis Vega. Nice. Oh, of course. So that would have been up there. Oh, as no, well. you got to put uh, you got to put a lot of songs into this list. And it, sometimes one hit wonders are ones that didn't go to number one. Right? You don't have to go to number one. No, you can just no. be a really big no. hit. You so want like any Camosi? Any Camosi's? Here comes the hot stepper. Has to be mentioned. Oh, right? great! Yeah, that's... great choice. Yeah, great choice. Oh, also, uh, Informal by Snow. Informer by Snow. Um, um, that's a great one. There's all oh. Two Princes by Spin Doctors. Classic. Uh, Eagle Eye. Eagle Eye Cherry. I'm not a big fan that's of the song. That's a great song, song you, though. That's a really good got, song. Yeah, yeah it, 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 I actually have also, that song. that's a great song. I, I, great I don't song. get much much time in my life to say that the fact that Crisscross happened and made one hit is a hilarious. That that is a remarkable. Did they make one remarkable hit, though, story. I feel like I missed the bus. <laughs> was a classic also, but you know, let's <laughs> say um, Chris Cross as well. So then. Jump, uh, jump around by House of Pain. That'll be another one. Yeah, maybe that's that. a very I good might, choice. I might change it. I'm gonna change it just for the sake of argument to <laughs> jump around by House of Pain because that is one of that's got to be top five. I mean, top five white people anthems and Weatherspoon anthems. Oh, if you play that in a Weatherspoons, people oh, go, kicks off. They go mental kicks in off, there. Mate. They go crazy in there. Carl, what's your stock answer then? Come on, um, unveil the winner. The Macarena. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. You you want to talk? Said that so seriously. <laughs> Said that so seriously. You want to talk What's about? Going on, Carl? You want to talk about wedding guest? Sort of. Oh, what did you do? Like, ah, oh, we're at a song. What was it? Macarena. Oh my god! Oh my god! You wrote the Macarena, which <laughs> goes off at weddings. We're going to talk about financials, Macarena. You're constantly going to be there on the holiday circuit, on on the touring circuit. Anytime there's a charity gig. So I was like, hey, do you want to come around and just do the Macarena? I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. You're, you're primed for the encore spot of any gig, right? You could turn up to nearly any pop star, any pop star's gig, and you're like, you know, the person who wrote the Macarena's there. So like, I'll bring them backstage, bring them backstage. You tell the story how you wrote the Macarena. You tell the story how you wrote the Macarena. Then you talk to the pop star about the Macarena. And then you say, hey, you know, it'd be really cool. When you do your encore, I'll come out and we can do the Macarena together. Bang, bing, boom. It's true. Wow. And the thing is, it's bad as well because I'd have the money from writing Jump Around, but I'd probably be doing like lots of court cases based on like, oh, this fight happened in this Irish pub because of your song. <laughs> this fight happened in this Irish wedding because of your song. This fight happened in Boston because of your song. 
this happened at this freshers ball because of your song. This happened at this mobile disco because of your song. What? No one, no one beefs to jump around. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know nowadays what's going on in the, in the clubs. But um, people do jump around quite recklessly, though. So someone might, it won't be like anything violent, but someone might be like, my, my nan was jumping around on a table and she fell off the table, you've been frame style, and we want to blame you for that. Like, that could happen. But don't you hate that song? Don't you hate the Macarena, Carl? What does it mean, Carl? Because it sounds like a very promiscuous woman. Are we slut shaming in the Macarena? I don't know, because I, the only part I know is when he says Macarena and also, eh. The Macarena, is, the Macarena is the song of a woman who's cheating on their boyfriend or their partner. Right, the lyric, like right. if you if you read the lyrics of the Macarena, it is very much about a woman who is about 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 Sp- someone who is cheating a on Sp- their partner. Yeah, a Spanish version of Phil Collins is "She's is a lover," <laughs> which is not a one hit wonder, but what a classic. I'd also just like to say um, that the, the stupidest the stupidest one hit wonder is still um, "Cotton Eye Joe" by the Rednecks. Um, that is a ridiculous song. So I have but, um, been watching a lot of the old episodes of Top of the Pops that have been released on BBC right. Player recently. You know, they're, they're currently up in, into January, February 1991. Um, so did they, cut out, did they cut out most of the paedophiles or not? Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> they, uh, they, they have um, edited quite well away from a, yeah. a certain terrible person. Um, and what I tend to do is I tend to watch a couple of episodes there, then I go into YouTube and I just put in a random date from the 90s and off I go. Uh, and I've seen a couple of poems of Cotton Eye Joe on Total Pops. They go off. They really do. Well <laughs> you know, what? there is, there is, there is, some, there's a point where some, you know, if, if you're going to have a one hit wonder, you'd better do it really, really well. And the people that Cotton Eye Joe well did that really, really, really well. Also, if really I remember correctly, the singers of Cotton Eye Joe are not American. Mm, no, correct. They're from Scandinavia, I believe. Yeah, which is that very strange. Oh, you're slightly lampooning what you think country music is, and that's part but of the. Pe- but, pe- but people love it. Yeah, people absolutely love it. Uh, in the same way that, like, you know, Swedish. In case you're yeah. interested, they were Swedish. There you go. So, yeah. Almost as yeah. almost as. Uh, it's, like, it's, it's weird. It's a weird one. Like, like Ace, where were Ace of Base from? Are they also Swedish? They were, they were, I think, from Denmark, actually. But Ace of Base had a few hits. They did have a few hits uh, and then turned out to be a white supremacist band. Sorry, <laughs> what? They, apparently, their song, All That She Wants Another Baby, is an anti-immigration song. Damn. Nice. Damn. Yeah. Nice. She just wants you for a baby that she's gone tomorrow. She just wants another um, baby. I think that was a wonderful question, Carl. You've nailed it and um, brought much colour and fun to this programme. We often get a very, very serious question to kick off the show, um, but it was quite pleasurable to talk about old pop music, right, Dane? Absolutely, and uh, a lot of good one-hit wonders, a lot of floor fillers there. It was a lot of good memories. Mm. I mean, and uh, Saturday Night by Wickfield. I feel like not the same impact as, as the Macarena, though. Worth mentioning. Worth mentioning. It depends what kind of part you're at. If, again, if I was on the weather, if I was on the weather screens, I know I was like, I wrote Saturday night, then I think it would go down very well yeah. as a good icebreaker. I think you're yeah. going to go to weather screens now after we've finished this show. You, you... <laughs> I think it's... we know I am. <laughs> good, good, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, my question today is going to send this uh, episode into a slightly different tangent. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And um, it won't be as fun. Sorry about that. Sorry, listeners, if you're having fun. But I can't, as a football fan, not talk about what has gone on over the last couple of weeks in regard to the fans at the England games booing the players taking the knee. I can't, I can't I do the show with Dane Baptiste for 113 episodes. And, you know, a lot of stuff winds people up. I understand people get annoyed about a lot of things at the moment. This one properly has fucked me off for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to ask you both, Carl, if you do, how do we solve the problem of people booing the players taking the knee uh, at, at England games? Obviously, it's going to become premiership games as well. You're essentially asking me how do you solve racism in the United Kingdom? Um, and, and, that, and that's why I wanted to. Yeah, that's why I wanted to open it up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you got kind of fifteen minutes, Carl. Just uh, it's, the, it's and you you can hear that because that is mm-hmm. that is that is exhaustion on my point, right? This is this is a. There are so many bad faith arguments as to why people are booing players taking the knee, right? And this is a short, non-violent protest about a short, non-violent, anti-racist protest. It is asking for the bare minimum of respect because that's basically what we are asking for when we're making anti-racist statements, right? It is me as a black person going, could you please treat me as a human being and worthy of the same human rights and the same uh, dignity that you would view yourself. And you have a collection of people who are going, boo, no. And there's a great degree of obstification, uh, manipulation, and just outright lying as to why they want to deny you your personhood, right? And you can, you've seen Gareth Southgate and members of the England team explain why they want to take a knee. There have been weeks and weeks and weeks, if not an entire year of broadcasters explaining to varying degrees of success why the knee is important and you still have people wanting to boo. You have to remember that the majority of the people, if you are someone in a football stadium right now, you tend to be a member of a supporters group, you tend to be a season ticket holder, right? We're talking, you are the core fan base of these mm football teams or institutions. You know, like football teams are institutions, community hubs, and basically, to a degree, living organisms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the English football mm-hmm. team the English football team exists in a very ethereal way that is alive and breathing and is the heart and soul of how... Same with work, working-class culture and, uh, you know, it's a rallying point right. for political identification as well, so... Right, yeah, yeah and this is... is. Like I said, it's a collective consciousness because it's like an organism. Yes, so it's, a, it's a collective. It's, yeah, it's, it is. And I, I'm really, really glad Gareth Southgate's the manager because he understands mm. his collective consciousness. He understands in like the, in the most brutal way, succinct way I can put it, Gareth Southgate understands where he works. He knows where he works. He knows the people he works with. He understands his stakeholders and he understands that he cannot ignore... He understands that for England to do anything as a football team, they need to be together and it needs to be harmonious. And he understands it cannot be together and harmonious if he chooses to ignore the fact that certain sections of a fan base wish to boo black people or actions black people wish to take. And he has gone again and again and again. He's apologized for times where he's not, when he's been dismissive and not done his homework. He's done his homework. He's explained why. He's written a fantastic piece in the Players' Tribune, explained what it means to represent this. It English was amazing. Team. I thought it was a really great thing. And... You can do all that. And I think that's great from Gareth Southgate. I also think it's really interesting that yesterday, or perhaps the day before, you know, this, this week that we're talking about, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, didn't denounce the people booing the knee. Didn't denounce people booing... Mm. Did not denounce people booing the knee. He sort of gave that sort of flim-flam out noise. He always does. And then on the same day, he also said that the ECB suspending a cricketer for making a number of poorly judged humorous tweets that veered into racism, 
he said that was too far to suspend them. This is any discussion we have of racism unite kingdom, you're essentially asking three questions. What is the racist incident that's occurred? Do people understand what racism is? What work's being done to educate and to basically undo this racist attempts? And it's very hard to do that where you have people in very, very powerful places just not acknowledging what racism is, just refusing to do the slightest amount of homework. There's a lot of times people go, do you think the United Kingdom is racist? And I respond, who is the prime minister? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, and, and the thing about this, the thing about this subject, and, and you know, look, I'm, uh, we talked about a lot of different race issues on this podcast, so it would be crazy to isolate what this one issue is away from all of the other issues we've discussed, right, Dane? But it is, it is a particular, um, there is a particular impact, right? <clears throat> like compare, you know, you'll see so many things on social media that you know the the the, the, the press or you know you say politicians. But there's something about like this 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 moment where you've got you know we're both Arsenal fans right Dan we watch Bakaya Saka mm-hmm. right score his first goal for his country right the guys the guy's 19 and at the end of the game he has to get asked why were these bunch of cunts booing you for being anti-racist and it, I just I just don't know I I, can't, I almost can't cope with it yeah it frustrates well, I, me I, I mean I would I would say to you that um, if Bakaya Saka has had even a quintessential experience as being a black man in the UK, he didn't have to wait until he scored his in, uh, on his England debut to uh, have to experience racism. So of I'm course. sure that's been a large part of his reality um, in almost every facet of his ascension to the position that he's in now. So for me, continuing with what Carl was saying, um, it's hard to really yeah, compartmentalise the discussion about uh Racist, uh, racist uh, demonstrations in English football because it's part of a larger problem. I personally believe that the mentality that uh, is shared by some uh, some parts of the collective consciousness of English football means that they will never get rid of racism because football is one of their last vestiges of association and assembly and what they perceive to be one of the few arenas left for their freedom of expression. And when you're dealing with somebody who's... Uh, reality is predicated on the belief that irrespective of their walk of life achievements or conduct they're better than any black person and that also permeates into football what you're dealing with is people who are struggling with a paradox of supposedly being predisposed genetically to be superior to a bunch of people who are clearly their athletic and financial superiors that are playing on the pitch so for somebody who's been inculcated with an idea of white supremacy the only way they're able to reclaim that is through their demonstrations and through them aggressing or uh, insulting uh, f- football players. The, the argument that gets me that gets me right in the gut is this idea that the protest, the taking of a knee, uh, mm-hmm. is in part bringing division, and it's this sentiment that in me pointing out, hey, there's a there's an uncomfortable line in the sand here, and there are some historical institutions that don't view black people as human, including the police, including some governments, and including some, you know, historical institutions that in, don't view it. Every, yeah. so in, including me, every capitalist Western finance institution that we know. Yeah. So me very, you know, as politely, as sincere as I could, going, for just a moment, I'd just like to say, there's this line here. Uh, and then the argument is going, it's divisive because we are, in taking the knee, the person is putting the line there. So in basically putting, making people aware of the line is you're then blamed for putting the line in place. And you would like the football, it's the argument that people, the footballers should get on with their job, which basically, if you look into history of black people in Western Europe, you're basically only viewing black people for their provision of labor, which you don't need to think too hard about. And that's the thing about England and that kind of, and that um, narrative you're describing really does zero in on the nuance of English institutional and structural racism, which, even though people again try to use the other distract- deflecting argument that class breeds more than race in the UK, they actually both combine to form a dual race and class-based uh, chauvinistic system, which is placism. So with football, you can look at it through the lens of football in terms of this, these places rhetoric you're dealing with, Carl, is that what they're saying is, in you may have money, but you don't have land and status. 
you may get even a certain level of title in the form of being an officer of the British Empire, a member of the British Empire, but the covenant in which you get that is that you are silent on these issues of racial or structural or classic inequality. The thing that comes up time and time again at the moment with this conversation is that it's not political, as in like taking the knee is not political, which is the bit that I kind of almost wanted to just kind of bring up. Oh, that's It's the craziest thing because how did it get over here in the first place? Taking the knee is not a incentive that was created by the FA or any kind of thing, English football institution. This was taken from the NFL by the demonstration led by Colin Kaepernick and they opposed it back then. So even then, the idea of taking the knee in itself is a compromise that black people have made whereby... This was denounced by the NFL and led to Colin Kaepernick being blackballed in his own sport. Now, that in itself proves that even my players still taking a knee, they are risking marginalisation and isolation within their own industry. And also, the efficacy of it is reduced because it's like, if you take a knee, you're going to get booed and attacked. So this was a, yeah. this was a gesture that was rejected by the entirety of white European, of white European Western civilization. It was rejected. Despite that fact... Black people have not have gone from not pumping their fists out as they did before in previous Olympics, but have gone to using a tried and tested method of demonstration that involves non-violent protest. I'm basically saying that it, 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 for me, it's a moot point to say that it's it's they shouldn't make it political because football in itself is political. Like for well, me, everything's everything's er, political. Er, every, everything is political. Yeah, they're, 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 to me, they're dumbing it down by saying. In it's fact, not in fact, football itself is one of the examples of when you get actual extra political discourse within something that shouldn't even be political in the first place. Like, for a start, we're one of the only nations I know of where the average person that reads the fucking sun thinks they have a democratic right to volunteer their opinion about how the England team should be run. <laughs> so how so how's it not political? Because most of the time... No, no, I don't quite agree there. There's many nations that have very pronounced football cultures that want to to agree. You got to bear in mind Argentina before the World Cup in 2018 basically did an advert where the manager stood in a stadium and Argentinian fans yelled opinion on the team. And you know, I don't want to go too deep into Argentina's political history there, but yeah. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, also you know, Argentina's yeah political history. The 1978 World Cup. That's a very, very good example of politics influ- influencing with sport. So I think when we say the knee is not political, it's this very, very unspoken conversation we have where we talk about politics with a big P, with capital P, and politics with a small P. So, yes, look, the knee might not be political with a P. It might not go into party politics, and it might not go into what you go to do when you go into a ballot station, but it's definitely small P. Right, the idea that black people, the idea that black people shouldn't be brutalized by the state or by the police, is definitely a small political issue, and that is definitely influenced by our political consciousness as a nation, and the fact there are certain people in this country that go, no, that's that's an American thing. That's the thing that doesn't affect people in the United Kingdom when there is verifiable evidence. There's, there's a fucking player for Aston Villa. Did they? Did he wasn't he actually killed by the police? So yeah. Yeah, it, there was the gentleman who uh, an incident with a taser, right? When you've got, you know, there's, you know, yeah. the fact that we've just had we've just had a race race aware, you know, race commission that came to the conclusion that United Kingdom was was not was not racist. There was no institutional racism in the United Kingdom, and then the UN went through that went through the paperwork of that of that commission and went, no, this was a very shoddily written piece of work. Yeah, you could not the, get to the that black conclusion. Person. The black person I was working in the department at the time resigned after the report came out, which was quite telling. Yeah. Oh, and so, those, those interested that the player, we, it was uh, Dalian Atkinson, was tasted to death by the police and was a former professional footballer for Aston Villa. So I think there's a real uh, justifiable reason for footballers, you know, especially when the rebuttal normally is, well, you're rich and you're a millionaire, so why are you getting involved in being political? Well, being a professional footballer does not predispose you as a black person to be safe from police brutality. So... Hmm. It's a crazy. I'm sorry. I should have phrased my argument. I'm not saying that it's not political to take a knee. I'm just saying it's no more or less political than printing a poppy on on a football kit. I don't think, or you know, having a million silence for someone that died during a war, or um, you know, in some cases, people that refuse to exchange shirts. Like remember, Cristiano Ronaldo refused to exchange shirts with members of the Israeli team because uh, for pro-Palestinian reasons at one time. So. I just don't know when sport. I, for me, for me, I just think it, it's just a part of the whole placist idea that 
black people are supposed to be seen and not heard when they are given these opportunities to exist and be overrepresented in certain industries. And the idea is that you run and jump and shoot and you don't talk. And I just think this idea that you can distill someone's athleticism from their humanity is uh, is ridiculous because, you know, you look into the States and stuff like that and Tom Brady goes to see Donald Trump in the White House and there's no furore or like, you know, sports pundits saying, why is he getting involved or is too political? Like, you know, and if we're going to, uh, I suppose, juxtapose a race report with English football, it's very hard for you not to be political at all because... I mean, your your experience is being erased as a footballer because you're going to be a human being and a black person first. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had to bring it up because you know, sports journalism uh, is is you know one of your specialties, Carl, and it's something that I just can't stop thinking about because it's I just found it pretty upsetting and frustrating. Not surprising, sadly, but um, but it's over to Dane for the final question of today's show. Yes, and um, I hope I'm able to phrase this properly. I mean, based this is just following on from the conversation we've had about uh, you know uh, both representation and racism within football. And this might be it might not be that easy a question to ask. Anyway, um, I saw you quite researched in it. I saw, I saw an article uh, about Dutch football players mm-hmm. who have their ancestry or their family's ancestry is in uh, Suriname. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of about like a speculative piece about what, how good the Surinamese team would be if the Dutch players played for their parents' country of origin. And so my question is, given the fact that it seems that racism, you know, as far as it is in a country, is not going to go anywhere within football culture as well. And so I want to ask in your opinion, how far are, no, countries like Suriname and Nigeria, or oh, I should rephrase it. Do you think that we are at a point now where it probably serves a lot of black footballers to maybe observe opportunities in their countries of origin rather than continuing to serve an institution that clearly doesn't recognize their humanity? That's a very interesting, that? that's yeah. a very interesting question that? that I have already gone partway to answer on The Athletic already. So uh, earlier this year, I'd say maybe two or three weeks ago, um, it were reports that the Jamaican FA was going to expedite a process to get uh, Jamaicans a citizenship for a number of uh, dual heritage players, one of which was Mikel Antonio. Um, and uh, I looked into the history of how FIFA rules have changed uh, and to why uh, more players of dual heritage were perhaps going for the, the country of their parents' birth rather than the, the country in which they were born in, you know, first and second generation immigrants, and how this was largely due to the good work of the Algerian and then in turn the Moroccan football association. So up until around about 2006, the rule used to be if you've played for a youth team for a certain nation, that was it. You were in, you were locked in and that was the team you're going to play for. Uh, And uh, the Algerian FA made very good concerted efforts, uh, a lot of legislation to FIFA to basically say, we've got, there's a lot of very talented uh, French Algerian or you know, dual heritage youngsters that have played for the French national team at youth level, but perhaps haven't quite made it to the French national team. It'd be really, really useful if we could have, or we'd be able to have those players within our team. 2010 World Cup, a number of players join. 2014, a number of players join. I believe if you talk to an Algerian football journalist about this for long enough, they will bring up Zin Zidane and be like, right, yeah, like he's he's got Algerian heritage. He's he could have been one of you could have played for us. Uh, so that was so that was the first step, just getting away this idea that if you played youth football for another nation, you couldn't play for another nation. Then it brings us up to just about 2014. I want to I'll get my I'm probably getting my dates wrong. Where the Moroccan FA basically made a point very similar of there are some players that maybe have perhaps played one or two times for France, but haven't really gone anywhere. It'd be really useful if we got some of those gentlemen in. Uh, number of legislations, things going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then that legislation got changed. So now the current FIFA rules are you can play up to three senior games for a nation and then you can still change providing, you know, if you're of dual heritage. And I think this is a very, very interesting... This is why football is... To me, I always say football is the most important, least important thing in the world because football is (laughs) an amazing anthropologic study and it's an amazing way to explain... Uh, socioeconomics, politics, uh, the movement of people, 
uh, and the history of the world, right? If you want to understand, if you want to understand how the you know Argentina's Argentina's military junta worked, here is the 1978 World Cup and people who disappeared during it, and here's why the goalposts were painted black as a, a form of nonviolent protest of the military junta. You know, if you want, there's a fantastic book about the kick that started the civil war. You know, you want to talk about Denmark winning Euro '92 is a very good... Oh, wait, but they didn't qualify. Why didn't they... Why didn't they Because they didn't qualify. Well, gentlemen, there used to be this country called Yugoslavia. And so on and so mm. on and so forth, right? It's, <laughs> it, football is a very, very important lens and a great way of teaching. And if you want to know the social history of a, of a, of a people or of a nation, you don't look at the front page, you look at the back page. Because that's what they're talking about. That's what, that's what the people are talking well, that, That's what people are talking that's about. That's why the France... That's what people. The France '98 team is uh, is so famous, right? Because it, it was this one crowning moment of diversity working in the in the eyes of many people in France. Yeah. No, you can't. Uh, you know, people have seen Invictus, and you know how Nelson Mandela took the the South African rugby team. Uh, you know, you can't say sport isn't political because various politicians, both with big P's and small P's, have used sport as a vehicle to get forth their ideas. There's a reason why a number of the greatest boxing matches of all time have happened in countries that perhaps were, you know, ruled or in, you know, run by people who didn't really listen to other people, shall we say. So you got that. So, <laughs> <laughs> what a nice, that, polite that's the most way political thing I heard in this episode. <laughs> um, Brilliant. So, Brilliant. you know, this is the good work. Morocco, so Morocco got to the point where at, at, you could play up to three times and you can switch. And this is how, you know, this is how England have Jack Grealish and Declan Rice in their team. These are two players mm. that previously played for the Republic of Ireland and then changed allegiances to England, which my Irish friends say some very interesting things about those gentlemen in question. So I think what's really interesting is historically in, in the world of football, the big nations have always done this, right? You're a really talented first immigrant, first generation immigrant crid. And are you going to go play for England or are you going to go play for, for your people back home? And if you want to win some silverware or you want to do something in the big stage, or you want to make money, not money in terms of your salary from England, because the England players essentially play mm. for free, but branding opportunities, you make more money if you've got a night contract in an England shirt than you do in a not Nike kit playing in AFCON uh, and you know whatnot. So that, that was that was level up until around about 2015, 16, 17 and then there's, there's a fantastic video on Vox about how the World Cup had around about 50 players from France, but not all of them were playing from France. You had players who were born in France that were also playing for Morocco, that were also playing for Algeria, that were also playing for Iran. And similar, you've got those of people who were born in Brazil or born in England that were playing for other nations now. And there is more freedom of choice and more freedom of opportunity for any everyone. Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking to you, I'm from, I've got Ghanaian heritage. I am quite sad that Callum Hudson-Odoi has gone back to Ghana right now and he's being regaled as a hero, but he's played more than three times for England, so he can't play for Ghana because I think he'd have been amazing in the Ghanaian national team. And then, what you know, you want to bring up a good example, Bayaku Saka, right? Saka got called up for England duty on Nigerian Independence Day. So I saw my, so I saw my Nigerian friends going... <laughs> oh, no. I, saw my, I saw my Nigerian friends going, there go the, there the English go again. Stupid colonizers. <laughs> 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 Um, yeah. I, you know, Saka gave a Saka, Saka answered this right he was asked about why did you declare for England rather than Nigeria and he gave an answer about how he feels both Nigerian but, but also he feels English and that uh, you know the answer was interesting but he said essentially he feels like he's both but from a footballing sense he'd like to play for England more and I think I think it's good that players have more choice than ever and that you don't get locked in from a decision you made at 14-15 I think. But it is, it is probably easier because you live somewhere now, right? As in like, that, that thing that Saka said is quite interesting, isn't it? Because he's living in England. He feels like he would play for the country he lives yeah, in. That, that but, must but it's very much, be in part of the pro- I th- reason. I think what it, what's important that it becomes one of personal choice. So, for you know, for example, Wilfred Zaha. Wilfred Zaha played for England youth groups all the way up until under 21. And then he got maybe one or two caps. And then very recently he said, I'm going to go play for Ivory Coast. And now he's, he's on Ivory Coast duty. He was there on their most recent international duty and the one in Mar- in March as well. And that's that's him now. That's what he wants to do. And I think that's great. Mm. I think, one, no one's going to love you as much as the people back home. 
And you, uh, you can, you only need to look at the videos of Hudson Odoi playing in Ghana to see that guy's beloved back home in Ghana. And it would have been really nice to see him play in a, in a, in a Ghana kit. Um, there was also, I do remember the last time Ghana played England, Danny Wilbert came off the bench. This was at Wembley. Danny Wilbert came off the bench for England and he got booed by the Ghanaian fans because like, you should have been one of us. But if Danny Wilbert, traitor. If, if Danny Wilbert wants to play for England, so, so be it. I think personal choice is important, but also we should also look into the reasons as to personal choice. So mm-hmm. it's not the same. If you, play, if you are someone who's born in London and you've got West African parents and you are maybe, you're maybe you're, let's use Aaron Wambasaka, for example. Right, Aaron Wambazaka was born in Croydon. He's got a heritage from DR Congo. Wambazaka is a very good right back. He's probably the fourth or fifth best right back in the country right now. So he might get called up by England one day by Gareth Southgate. He might not. Southgate's spoken on record about why he might not pick him. So Wambazaka has a choice now. He can either wait or try and improve and try and impress Gareth Southgate and get chosen for the England national team. Or he can declare for Congo and go play for them. Now, if he stays and waits for England, he gets picked up. That means every time it's an international break, he travels from Manchester down to St. George's, hangs out with all the camp in St. George's. St. George's is state-of-the-art technology. Everything you need is there taken care of. They've got swimming pool, gym, whatnot. Again, branding opportunities for other things if you want to make money elsewhere. Then he goes down mm-hmm. to Wembley, plays his two or three games for Wembley. Again, one the, Wembley is one of the best state football stadiums in the world, even if it's not a great experience for a fan. Does all that. Goes back to Manchester. He travels that much. If he chooses declared for Congo, right? He that international weekend experience changes dramatically. Mm. He's got to, mm. and, and again, he's got he's got to sort out things. He's got to get flown off to the Congo. There might be different facilities. There might be different uh, protocols. There might be different, you know, a different sense of professionalism. Now, is that because we won't know the players? You won't know the players. You'll know the players in the plays if he plays for England. Is now is is the is the democratic is DR Congo less professional and less able to match English facilities because it's African or is it they're able to, they're not able to do that because most of their talent and natural resources have been nicked by a country like England. Um, so, and again, it's that personal choice. If someone like Wambasaka goes, I want to play for England because I was born in Croydon and also it's just an easy experience playing for, playing for England than it is playing for Congo where there is issues with their FA or, you know, if you, if you don't want to play with a, with a nation where your FA has been gone under quote unquote FIFA normalization. So even though Zaha's played for the Ivory Coast, the Ivory Coast don't technically have an FA right now. They have what's known as a FIFA, Mm. they have what's known as a FIFA normalization committee, which is when FIFA come in, they airdrop in some suits and go, right, you've been really, really corrupt for ages and you can't run an FA. So the FIFA bods are going to run it. Being told you're corrupt by FIFA and the FIFA are going to start out your corruption. <laughs> Bit weird. Um, and it's that with, and again, this is the th- great thing about football, about how it's a really interesting way you can teach colonialism and the effects of colonialism right now. So yeah. I'd say right now in a personal capacity, if I was a professional football player and I was the third or fourth choice for my country, I'd probably play for Ghana rather than England. If I was third or fourth choice. If I was one or two. Hmm. I'd, mm. I'd probably change my opinion there. <laughs> what a great answer. And what, I mean, what, what an interesting question. Cause I mean, well, I was thinking, is that the solution that's left? Yeah. Is that if these countries, if people in these countries will not appreciate these players, is it not about reversing this brain drain and this kind of siphoning of resources from these countries and maybe be like, play for the, play for, like I said, play for the nation that appreciates you. And I think maybe England will realize because I do make it, oh, well, even though it is a facetious observation is that the last time England won the World Cup was like Martin Luther King was still alive and we hadn't signed a Civil Rights Act. Since the sport has been somewhat integrated, they haven't really had a good chance. Uh, and I'm just saying, you know, maybe if we take a look at some of the more recent winners of the World Cup, like a large contingent of them have had to rely heavily upon the use of their immigrant competency in the form of like France, for example. But this is this. Well, the France example is, is, is intense, isn't it? Because if you took away the players with potential dual nationality from France. Germany too, and Germany. Because Germany but had France, like, the numbers, oh, Dane, yeah, the France, numbers yeah, France, in France, yeah, France is, like, is just outrageous. Yeah. When you rip out Kante, Pogba, ben, Benzema, Mbappe, you know, like, and then go back to Turan, Zidane, Armory, Vieira, it's just massive I right? mean, it's, 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 this is why this is why the booing of the knee again stings because let's look at the England team 
right? Let's mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's look at your average England team will have in there. Gomez, yeah, yeah, but you know, ev- Gomez, everyone's yeah. fit in there. You've got players like Joe Gomez, Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, mm-hmm. um, Saka, De- Saka, Raheem, De- Sterling as well. Yeah, um, Trent, Declan, Trent, Trent, like, yeah, Trent as well. Right? Yeah. And that, that's the black players. Then you go someone like Declan Rice. Yeah. Jack Grealish yeah or, Russ, yeah or Russ Barkley <laughs> yeah and, and it's the thing where Russ Barkley Nigerian legend uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, but this is the this is the very interesting thing about football and Dane when you say play for the country that respects you uh, that's one of those tiny things with a one on Wikipedia where you go citation needed yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just because I'm of Ghanaian and I'm of Ghanaian and English heritage right now if you told me I was English nowadays I would say no I'm not I'm from London because that's how I view my that's how, that's that's how I view my personhood, um, <laughs> but also when I do go to Ghana, I don't I don't necessarily feel as comfortable declaring mm-hmm. my Ghanaian heritage there because I don't speak the native language, I don't speak my mother tongue, uh, I visibly stick out compared to I don't you know Ghanaian the average person who grows up in Ghana doesn't grow as tall and as dimensions to me. Um, mm. So there's that, and yeah, I, I do have a pleasant experience when I'm in Ghana, but not. All the time. Yeah, of course. Uh, so it's not necessarily, a, well, the English aren't respecting me, so I'll go play for Ghana. Because also that's kind of disrespectful to my nation of heritage. The fact that I'm only coming there because the English rejected me. I think if it's a matter of, yeah. I think it should be a matter of personal choice. And I also think it should be a matter of conversations with, with, with those FAs you're dealing with, right? I think what's also interesting is, yeah. you, as a, you know, a joke way to answer this, if you want to see bureaucracy at work, look at a player or look at an athlete changing citizenship to another country. No one in the history of ever gets a passport quicker than an athlete changing nationality. <laughs> Absolutely. That is very true. That's true. And no one gets no one gets medical attention as quick as an athlete injured on a pitch as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we've uh, run out of time, but I could happily keep listening to you talk about that all day, Carl. But it's been a, what a brilliant episode, Dane. I've, I've loved every minute of this. Absolutely. It's been massively insightful. And lucky for us, Carl does all this writing and talking on a regular basis. So uh, if you could please let us know, we can find out about some more of your good work. So where to catch you on a regular, please. Yeah, I, well, I'm a football journalist six days a week over in The Athletic. I cover Manchester United twice a week and I have a general column about the world of football. So that, uh, what I just told you there about changing passports and player of choice was one of the columns I wrote uh, earlier this year. So you can find me over there at The Athletic. We've got a special offer on currently. So Newcastle subscribers can subscribe for £1 a month for the next six months. That's in promotion of Euro 2000. Euro 2000 and 20. Euro 2021. <laughs> uh, one. Uh, and also during Euro 2020, I will be embedded with the England national team. So I'll be, I'll be in Wembley watching the England team. So I'll be on, cool. uh, I'll be on various podcasts, including Totally Football, uh, Wrighty's House, which is a podcast I do with Ian Wright, Musa Wonga, Jeanette Kwache, and Ryan Hun, uh, and a podcast known as The England Show that you can find on the Athletics feed on all your good podcast uh, providers. Uh, in addition to that, I've got a short film coming on out with the BBC with uh, BBC Inside Cinema. So this will be out in the next week and a bit about football and film and the history of football and film. You can find that on BBC iPlayer. If you just search Inside Cinema, you'll be able to find that in the next couple of weeks. In addition to that, uh, I, I wrote a book with Marcus Rashford. It's called You Are a Champion. It is a children's book trying to give tips, uh, advice, uh, and uh, just personal stories from Marcus Rashford's life as to how... Uh, you can be the best version of you that you can be because that's what Marcus very much would like to encourage the next generation of children. Uh, it's We've written it with the aim of it being read by children between 11 and 16, but I've seen and I'm grateful and humbled and overwhelmed by children as young as six picking up the book and reading it uh, and also adults and parents picking up as well. So if you could check that book out, uh, I think you would really enjoy that too. It's It's the best thing. I've ever been involved in in my life and uh, thank you Marcus for that because I'm really proud of that book Carl what a pleasure genuinely mate the real pleasure and, and, and the insights that maybe you know particularly in that last question that I don't think not everyone's as well versed in was fascinating right Dane? Absolutely and uh, thank you for not taking a bait of me of saying uh, anything that potentially get you cancelled uh, I realise that you are a journalist and so you can be you are much more susceptible to misquotes than I am um, but it has been a very good episode man and very helpful and a great question to open up with at my next Weatherspoons Day 
I've got some good ones. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm up for that, man. But um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very much appreciate it, Carl. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBapTweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Carl Anker. You can follow Carl on Twitter at Anchorman616 or on Instagram at Carl.Anker. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>